0: Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts chapter 10, 11, 11, <laughs> chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will stand and read verses 19 through 30. <clears throat> Would you stand please for the reading of God's Word beginning in verse 19 of the book of Acts chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord." Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Please be seated. The title for this morning's message is Antioch. And it is the name of a city... In that ancient world that every Christian should know. looking Looking at the title, you know I could have come up with other names, but you know this is the one that we need to be familiar with. Travel 300 miles, almost straight north from Jerusalem, and you will come to this ancient Gentile city. This Antioch belonged at the time to Syria. Today it is located in modern Turkey. It's not to be confused with another Antioch in Pisidia, which is also in Turkey. This one is on the Mediterranean coast. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome, of course, was first, and then in Egypt there was Alexandria. This Antioch became the epicenter for Gentile converts to Christ without Judaism. Up until this time, most Gentiles that came to Christ, well, there weren't really any. They first came by way of, of becoming a Jew, and then they became Christians. But then Peter, of course, went up to Caesarea and brought them into the faith. But they really weren't coming into the church Until we get to this chapter, and this is what we're considering this morning. Here at Antioch, the Christians will really be coming into the church, and everything is going to change. I was reading an update from one of the missions that uh, works primarily in Iran and Afghanistan, that part of the world. And they were telling of a convert to Christ named Abdul inside Afghan. Afghanistan, in, in his own words. Uh, evidently, he called and left a voicemail. And I want to share what, what he said, because I think it has everything to do with what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 11. Abdul called in, and he said, we truly had never heard about him. Of course, that is Jesus Christ. He lifted us up out of the pit. Thank you so much, Lord, how much you have loved us. That you came to save us. The grace of Christ is enough for me. I don't want anything else. This is recent. And you listen to these words, and of course, I, I would think that all of us are a little challenged by it. But here is someone who never heard of the name of Jesus Christ today in the time we live in. And in Antioch, at the time that this took place, there were those who never heard of the name of Christ either. Today in America, there are many who have heard of the name of Christ. They just don't know anything about him. There are others that do, and there are others that have, are confused. But uh, there are some that just have no knowledge of the scripture, true knowledge, and that is where we come in. Well, looking at verse 19 of Acts 11, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, as I was reading the, the verses, the word Antioch, Antioch kept coming up, and I think that is on purpose. It is stressed because of what took place there. Four thought-provoking words there in verse 19 for us, persecuted, scattered, traveled, and preach. The Lord told the Christians to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but they're very sluggish about that. They remained in Jerusalem, but the persecution pushed them out. And then even even then, as we're looking at in this section, the Jews mostly were the Christians at this time. They weren't really bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. They didn't know how. They're going to learn, though. They're all learning. It says, after the persecution. No, we cannot always flee persecution, but in this case, they did, and it was a good thing. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 9, Paul said, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The hardship that they incurred in Jerusalem did not deter them from bringing their faith to other places. You, You know, the world might reason and say, well, you know, if they were persecuted be a good idea not to try to recruit people to a religion that is not well-received. But the opposite was true, and aren't we glad? This signals to us that the word of God is primary, and joy in this life is secondary. I would, I would like to have them both at the same time. But that is not the reality for us always. Hardship is no reason to stop preaching. Preaching. That is what is coming out of this. They were persecuted, they got away from the persecution and they continued to preach. Why should pain make us stop preaching Christ? Can any Christian answer that question? Is there an answer to that question for a question for a Christian? Of course not. Pain should not make us stop preaching Christ. He is whom we believe. But Satan wants the hardship the difficulties, the things in life that scare us and hurt us. He wants those things to stop us from loving the Lord, from loving the brethren, and from doing our duty. And we know better, and we should be ready for these things. It may hurt more, but we are supposed to preach the gospel no matter what. It says here in verse 19 that they were scattered because of The the persecution that arose over Stephen. Well, Stephen preached, as did the apostles, that Jesus is the coming one. That answers the question that the great prophet John the Baptist asked from prison. Are you the Christ, or are we looking for another one? He had that moment of doubt. And, of course, the Lord said, go tell John the things you've seen, the things that you've heard. He'll figure it out. And then after those messengers went to tell John they departed, Jesus addressed the the audience and said, "Uh, make no mistake, among prophets, none greater than John. So he did not, he built him up. He said, there's a great man of faith that had a moment of doubt. That is all part of the learning processes of who Jesus is. They went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching. When, when Stephen was persecuted, these are the areas they spread to. But, of course, for us, our attention is going to center on Antioch. And the, the word, it says here, at the bottom of verse 19, the word they preached to no one but the Jews only. Now, we're about 10 years after the resurrection, and still this is the case. They were too isolated to know how to reach the Gentiles. And as I mentioned... They're going to learn. And these chaps who show up from Cyrene and Cyprus, they're the ones that are going to lead the charge. And they're common Christians. They're not apostles. They're not even leaders. They're, they're probably not even that well taught in Christianity. And the reason why I say that is because Barnabas gets up there and he says, we need to bring some teaching here. And he, that's when he goes and gets Saul. We'll come to that. Verse 20 now. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So typical of the Bible. In verse 19, you know, you're, you're, you're so many years uh, back, 10 years back to Stephen. And now, in verse 20, you're 10 years later when these, these uh, uh, Cyrenians and Cypriots arrive here, here in um, Antioch. Barnabas happened to be from Cyprus a small island there, in or the, well, an island in, in the, the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast of Israel, and, and this Antioch, oh, about 100 miles, well, not that maybe that far. Antioch is 16 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this, the significance of that is they had seaports. This is a, a doorway to the trade routes of the east, People from various cultures were drawn to this area. This is why it was such a big city. It was a a cosmopolitan city. People from various ethnic groups were here. Those from Rome, Egyptians, Persians, people from India as far as China. They're all here in Antioch. Cosmopolitan. And these are the people that Christianity is going to start bringing into the church, not only the faith, but in the assembly. And it all happens here. He says here in verse 20, when they had come, spoke to the Hellenists. So Luke makes it clear that the Christians were spread, they had been around, but this particular, these two groups of people, when they arrived here in Antioch, they began to speak to the Hellenists. Uh, these are... Greek-speaking, Grecian-cultured Jews who are now taking the gospel to idolatrous people, people who worship man-made religion, statues and figurines being a big part of it, and paganism. Well, paganism is worshiping creation without the Creator. And it is alive and well today. And this this is where the church was 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 doing her duty as believers. And this is recorded for us. It is to challenge every single generation of Christian. Antioch was the center of worship for the pagan goddess Daphne. And this brought much wealth to the city. In fact, it was called the Beautiful City, one of its nicknames. It included, as almost always with the ancient religions, licentious and what we would say Immoral practices. And Paul had to sort through this. This is why in his letters, he says, he says to the Christians, you know, things like, have one wife. And, and you know, he has to lay these things out. Don't lie. <laughs> why are you telling Christians not to lie? You would think that, that we, we would know that. But it is because of the influence of their, envir- their surroundings. Their environment. Gave license to these things. And, uh, of course... The great apostle did not sweep these things under the rug. Neither did the other ones, uh, incidentally. Peter was sent to the Gentiles by the Holy Spirit. It was very pronounced. We covered that in chapter 10. In the beginning of 11, we reviewed it again. These Cypriot and Cyrenian Jewish disciples of the Messiah, they went to the Gentiles without any record of God having a dramatic experience with them. But it was an experience nonetheless. And of course, whenever it is God, it is dramatic. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, is in control of everything that is taking place here. Just like He, we know, he is in control of everything in our lives. if We yield to him. He is present for it all. That's why we read in Proverbs and we make, you know, we put it on t-shirts and coffee mugs and refrigerators. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. Because he is sovereign. And part of his being God includes that he is ubiquitous. He can be everywhere and he is everywhere at the same time. The world doesn't know this. In fact, as we go through the Old Testament, we know that they localized their gods. Well, he's the god of the hills, and he's the god of the valley, and he and, and so this, this is crazy. This is not God. And today, there we there are people just as ignorant. And I don't mean that uh, as an intended insult; just a fact. They're ignorant of the revelation of God uh, to man. Well, they arrive here uh, at Antioch. And they decided to begin as a matter of policy to reach out to the non-Jewish people. And this has not happened before. Again, Peter was sent, yes, but it seems that that had been it. This is on a, a larger scale. Evidently, they were inspired by Peter's experience at Caesarea. And perhaps even they finally got word of what God told Saul, Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, who was going to go to Saul, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now, a devout Jew may have listened to that and said, well, he's just going to bear the name of Yahweh to them, but it doesn't mean he's going to lead them into Christ. He wouldn't just think that way. It took time. It was very difficult. And this is not to say that they were somehow Uh, less sensitive, less loving than us. They were victims of their upbringing. And it wasn't just washed away instantly. This had to develop to overcome these things. And that's why we give you, I give you timestamps, saying to you, for example, this is now about 10 years after the resurrection. And Christianity really has not moved, as Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Well, Christianity here in Antioch will be set apart from everything else. It will be set apart from Judaism and from paganism when they, when the worldlings say, you're Christians. God didn't give that through the believers. It came from the unbelievers. You're Christians. And it's stuck. It was suitable. It's right. And in that sense, it does come from God. We'll open that up when we get to verse 26. Here, they are preaching the Lord Jesus, these Cypriots and Cyrenians. Our primary purpose is to spread the word of God. Why are you here on earth? Well, of course, you've got to make a living, have to raise children, you've got to do various things. But the main reason why you are left here in this life is to preach Jesus Christ in some way, in some form, through your testimony, through speech, Uh, the combination of these things, throwing at it everything we've got to prepare ourselves to be useful to God. Now, there may be times when you just don't feel it. It's not happening. Well, that's going to be the case with Saul the Apostles while while he's in Tarsus and Cilicia. But while he's there, he's preaching. He is working. There is much evidence in history that there were Christians in this area and during the time of Saul uh, who became Paul. But he's going to be used on a grander scale in a little while, faithful with the little things. It can take a long time, and a lot of pain. It's a lot of pain to be used by God. This uh, preaching of the Lord, it was to bring what God says to man to man. God has already revealed it in His word. He has said it to mankind. But how does it get to them? As I read about that convert in Afghanistan, Abdul, he never heard of Jesus Christ. Somebody got there. We look at uh, some maybe uh, uh, participant in a pagan religion and we sneer at them. Oh man, they're here. And our heart should be, Lord, help me to reach them. You love them too. And to remember that, if you listen too much to the news, you might you, you you're your that part of your heart that would reach out to the unbeliever may start to become a little foggy because you're just so bombarded by what Satan is doing, you're losing sight of what God wants to do, and that is to bring His Son to man, and He uses us to do it. They're preaching the Lord Jesus to these uh, Gentiles, overcoming opposition. Now, some feel that these were not Gentiles, that they were speaking. These were Jews under the Grecian culture speaking to other Jews in the Grecian culture. But that would be a redundancy. Ten years into this, we've already passed the experiences of Acts chapter 6. To the Greek-speaking Jews, cultured Jews, they were, they were already accepted. That is not how uh, this section reads at all. There would be nothing remarkable about preaching to fellow Jews because, uh, in this context, because Luke is making it remarkable. Of course, it's remarkable to speak to anybody about Christ, but that's not where he's going here. Uh, they, this is a fantastic experience. These are farsighted believers, likely men and women, doing their part, the the Cyprians and the Cyrenians, the Jewish Christians, taking the first major step into the Gentile world. Not to take away from Peter what Peter did. It wouldn't happen without what Peter did in Caesarea, but it's happening, and it's happening finally. They begin to preach Christ to the Gentiles, bringing them into the church where there was no such thing before, not like this. It was then as it is now all about who God is who truly is God is he who man says that he is or is he who God says that he is and what evidences do you have and what is what is one to do with their life after they discover who God is. These are the pressing questions for them and Antioch and for us to this very day. Who is God? What are we to do with that? What did did Saul the Apostle say when the Lord met him on the road to Damascus? Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do for you? That simplifies it. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great multitude believed and turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord is the hand of Jesus Christ, and he uses our hands to pull it off, to to make this happen. In Mark's gospel, we read, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. Well, again, at that point, they were just going out to the Gentiles, but they were doing it nonetheless, uh, to the Jews, pardon me. And a Jewish soul is just as important as a Gentile soul, and vice versa. Now we're seeing it spread and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The Gentiles were hungry for the truth. Many of them were sick of the made-up gods, the things, the, thing the Zeus fighting against this one, arguing with that one, and, and Mercury and all this nonsense. The spread of christian <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let's pause for a minute. That'll help when they make the radio, message radio. When they help the message, going, okay, forget it. Good night. Can I have an interpreter? Somebody, anybody here speak American? All right, back to this. The spread of Christianity in Acts is pronounced and it is deliberate. Luke is, the whole purpose is documenting this. Oh, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, well, here it is. This is how it happened. And Theophilus, if it is a single person, which I believe it is, he's reading this stuff and he's devouring it. Evidently a person of means. And Theophilus gets this, and more than likely, Luke probably has an original copy or two, you know, you would would think. Somebody said, this is so good, we've got to publish this. We have it preserved for us. That The majority texts of manuscripts that we have are called the majority texts because there's so many of them. And there's so many of them because they were that good. They were that important. So they kept copying, uh, keeping them in circulation. Some would fade, you know, we get lost. They would just keep producing them. Whereas there are other manuscripts where there are not that many. They're evidently not as good. Uh, I believe that. That is... um, my understanding coming back to verse 21 and a great number believed and turned to the Lord verse 22 then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch well (laughs) this news is received in Jerusalem Jerusalem's got issues at the end of this, hopefully, if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll mention what churches I would not want to attend in the, book, in the New Testament. There are churches I just would not want to belong to. And then there are churches I would love to have, to have belonged to. And I'll, I'll mention some of them in, in a little bit. But uh, at this point, news gets to Jerusalem. And I'm sure many of them received it well. Great. The gospel is spreading. But trouble's on the horizon. We'll get that in Acts 15 to, to prove that point. But mark the wisdom of the choice to send Barnabas. Of all the believers in Jerusalem, Barnabas is singled out. This is God. God knew the right man. He was not an apostle. He was an intimate. He was close to the apostles. He was adored by them. And he earned it. It was properly placed, their adoration. As I mentioned, he was from Cyprus. He knew the Grecian culture also. also. He's the one going up, and they're going to be happy it was was him. He is a gallant servant. We covered him in earlier chapters, in chapter 4 and in chapter 9. When I think of, you know, there's a lot of material about compared to Barnabas, about Joseph and Daniel. I mean, Joseph is just such a magnificent character. Probably the greatest type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, as a person goes. Well, when I think of those two men, Joseph and Daniel, I I think of Barnabas, too. He was just that caliber of a devout believer. Not that others weren't, but he he was in that group. Verse 23, when he came... He had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Well, we know he has this gift of encouragement. He just looks for the solution. He looks to keep moving things forward. You know, pessimist looks at the glass half empty with a crack. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's not enough to just be half empty. It's leaking out for more. <laughs> Verse 23 is, tells us, and when he came, that he had seen the grace of God. He knew how to identify, he knew what he was looking at. He had spiritual discernment. He said, this is God. This isn't just a bunch of people that are, you know, some people confuse activity for ministry. They think because they're busy bodies that somehow this is being led by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they end up getting uh, some results, but they're just not. The Spirit's not there. And if you've ever been a part of these things, you come in and you say, boy, this is all great. You got this, you know, this great work you're doing, but nobody's talking about the love of the Lord. Nobody's preaching the gospel. You're building huts for people or soup kitchens for people or whatever, and these things are good. But where's the love of Jesus Christ? It's so busy that they've lost sight of that sometimes. I'm not saying in every case, but in, in many cases, there are those that confuse activity for ministry in Jesus' name. we got to all watch out for that. Well, coming back to verse 23. Had they sent up a legalist to Antioch. A legalistic Jewish believer. Things would have turned ugly. But God was in control of all of this. From sending the non-apostles up to start reaching the people. To have Barnabas come up. And as he should have, to confirm their work. Legalism makes us critical of others, and at its source, is, one is self-impressed with their faith. We covered this Wednesday of uh, Je, uh, Jehu, who was uh, impressed with his devotion, his own devotion to God. He said, sort of, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And really, there was no zeal for the Lord, it was a zeal for himself. But grace, on the other hand, makes us constructive towards others while hating sin nonetheless. Don't, don't, grace is never a pass on sin. It is just the gratitude that my sin is dealt with and I'm not cast out from Christ. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. It's God saying to Satan, in your face, not us, but God. Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon said, Grace which does not make us hate sin is false grace. Spurgeon just had this way about him. That he could so, so in, with, with concise speech, just make these profound points. Barnabas tells them that they should continue with purpose of heart. Resolve. Resolve is to set the will over the, the brains and the feelings. Not to get rid of the brains and the feelings, just to keep them in their proper place. Resolve is, no, I'm going to do this. Not stubbornness is the other way. Stubbornness pushes away brains and the will of God and it's just the flesh. But resolve has figured it out, has made its calculations. Ruth did this. When 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 Naomi said, "Depart from me," she said, "I ain't going anywhere." Your people, my people. Your God, my God. See, that was resolve. It's critical to usefulness. You want to be useful to God? Have this resolve. Philippians three, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. This is the great apostle Paul in jail for Christ, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not not Caesar's prisoner. He was never Caesar's prisoner. He was a prisoner of Christ. And he says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the mark for the prize, for the high calling in Christ Jesus. That is resolve. I want, I don't want some of that. I want all of that. Daniel said, said of Daniel, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies Going with wine, which which he drank. And so there we see uh, resolve, and Daniel purposed in his heart not to give in. Everybody else was drinking these things. Everyone else was eating these things. Daniel said, we're not going to just give in to this, that they should continue with the Lord. Well, what do we have here? God forces no one to love him. I don't care how many degrees a person has, how much they've studied, how zealous they are. When they tell me that God forces people to be saved, I depart from that. I don't agree with them. I vehemently disagree with that. Because then you have a hostage situation. You're going to get loved, kid, whether you like it or not. I mean, that's not God. It's not the New Testament. And not even the Old Testament. And this goes against a lot of people once well, save, always save. And they think that you're just repeating something they read instead of what the scripture is saying. Romans eleven twenty two. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cast out. What part of that is confusing? Well, you have to bring somebody in that has to give you a human doctrine, and then it gets very confusing. I'm not intimidated by this. I love it. I love that God treats me. He says, listen, you will be with me in heaven if that's what you want. Well, yeah, I want it. But Lord, what if I mess it up? Where sin abounded, grace did much more. You will be kept by the power of God as long as you want. I think that's very fair. I think, in fact, God is a perfect gentleman. We read about, as uh, our definition of gentleman, right? We read about him in the book of Acts. I stand at the door and I'll kick it down. No, he doesn't do that. I'll stand at the door and I'll huff and I'll puff. No, he stands at the door and he knocks. He's not rude. He doesn't force himself in. This is his church. He's knocking on the door to his church. He is Lord of the harvest. He is Lord of the church. And he knocks. He wants to be invited in. He wants people to willfully open the door for him. These illustrations abound in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Colossians chapter 1. Now I know this ruffles a lot of feathers because you've been listening to people that have just been saying it and it feels good to the flesh. But what does the Bible say? If indeed, Colossians 1 verse 23, you continue in the faith, that's conditional. I'm not terrified by that. I know the Lord's love for me. At some point, the Christian's got to stand up and say, write my name down, loved by Jesus Christ. Instead of this, am I saved? Am I not saved? Can I lose my heart? Stop it. Lay hold of it with resolve. It's not, We're not given a salvation so we can keep questioning it. We're given salvation because of what Jesus has done for us, based on his love for us and his desire to use us. And if we do not make ourselves useful, he loves us nonetheless. We have a robust God. And he is not impressed by, you know, people being intellectual. He's impressed with people who are Christ-like. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now, I'm not going to take 20 minutes to try to tell you that doesn't mean what it, what it says. I'll leave that to those who write many books on that one topic. Anyhow, coming back to this, verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. A good man of God is a useful man to God. Who would disagree with that? Well, Satan, of course. You know, Satan tried to mess with me on my way up here, like two, like thirty seconds before it was time to, to come up. It's like this isn't use. Shut up! That was my and come out and preach to God's word. You don't have to hear that from him. You find Satan messing with your head. You can let him mess with it if you'd like, but you stand up to him. And sometimes he doesn't stop just at the command. Stop it! Just keep saying it. Keep resisting him. This is fact. This is Christianity. We don't... I think we all agree a good man of God is a useful man to God. Satan will come along and he'll chip at that. Well, define good. No. (laughs) Let God define it. He's using me. He loves me. I'm good enough because of Christ. This is what is taught in 2 Corinthians. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is upon us. It is his righteousness, not my righteousness. That's what Barnabas had and it tells us the next clause. Full of the Holy Spirit, not full of himself. In Acts, this was said of the apostles, that they were full of the Holy Spirit. It was said of Peter. It was said of Stephen. It's said of Barnabas. It said of Paul. Peter was filled to convert. There we read about Peter preaching and all the converts about, you know, 3,000 added to the church. Stephen was filled to convict. He convicted all of them. So much so, they, they got rid of him. They killed him. Barnabas was filled to encourage. Paul was filled to overcome the obstacles Paul had to face to preach the gospel and keep it uniform to Jew and Gentile alike, to remove that distinction. So I look at this: if Peter converting, Stephen convicting, Barnabas encouraging, Paul overcoming, what about me? If I'm filled with the Spirit, what am I doing? Well, it's not meant to make you feel small. Like what are you doing? You're not. You're useless. Nothing like that. It's just a good question, and it may change as the years go by. Life changes. At one point, you you know you're in an environment where you are. Convicting people. Maybe you're in the workplace and everybody's, you know, doing all the wrong things. And you're just, I'm not having any part of that. That is convicting them. Or maybe you're in another place where you're just encouraging people. Some people, some some professed Christians, you think it would kill them to encourage somebody. Well, I better not tell them they're doing a good job. They get a big head. Oh, (laughs) you know, sometimes we need a bigger head. Sometimes we need a little help. Sometimes it's okay to tell somebody you are actually doing a wonderful job. In fact, we should try it after service at the greeting line. Everybody's a wonderful job, Pastor. Every single, knocked it out of the park again. You're so good, it's getting boring. No, wait, let's no, strike that. Let's not go too far. Anyway, of course, and it's okay to encourage people. It, but long as don't make it fake, though. I mean, if, if, if your kid loses, you know, in a, a, a track race, he's running, he comes in last. Don't say, "Good job, Johnny, you got out there on the field." Say, that was that's awful. You probably need to take a bowling. <laughs> don't, don't, let's not break down. Then nobody's going to trust you. You, know, my mom would do that. No, it was so wonderful. I could get an F on on a test. Oh, it was wonderful. At least it wasn't a G. Oh, mom, good night. <laughs> So when when someone that that you respect comes along and says that was really good then it's just like yes okay that's what i needed from coming from that person that's what i needed well anyway don't barnabas this is why he's such an outstanding character but notice the parallels convicting convincing encouraging overcoming fill me with your spirit lord Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That spiritual characteristic produced by being full is faith. Trusting God. Fill me with your spirit until there's no room left for self, for Satan, for sin, for the world. We all want that. I think it's a you doubt your You doubt your salvation? Ask yourself, do you want these things? Because if you do, you're saved. And more than likely, you are already full. You don't have to know you're full of the Holy Spirit to be so. You love the Lord. You, you want to give Him as much back as you can. This is evidence of being full of the Spirit. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Well, we again, we read of this often. We read of uh, men who were full and effective for speaking in Acts chapters 2 and 4, for serving in Acts chapter 3, remember, uh, choose from among yourselves seven men full of the, full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit whom we may appoint over this business. We read of them in, in Acts chapter seven, being full of the Spirit for dying, that would be Stephen, for encouraging, as here in verse twenty-four, and for rebuking. We'll get to that in chapter thirteen. This is the early church. These are the first Christians, and it should be us. Two, Verse 25. Now, one of our brothers, who will remain unnamed, said he'd be surprised. He's praying for me that I get to the end of this chapter. I, at first, I thought, Shh, watch and see I'm a pro. Now I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Verse 11. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. This is just amazing. Somewhere in Jerusalem, about 10 years earlier not quite, but they're about nine, maybe eight, they met. And some say three years only, but that, the, the math doesn't work at all with that. Barnabas saw that these believers in Antioch had a zeal for God without knowledge. And he knew this was not sustainable. Zeal is never enough, by itself. It is a critical ingredient, but it is not enough. Zeal, has cons- zeal for your house has consumed me, said the Lord. Yeah, but look at the rest of them, of him. He was just had everything. Sound Bible teaching was needed to make sound Christians according to the Bible. And Barnabas knew just the man. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to teach them. I would teach better than Paul or Saul at the time. And he doesn't do that at all. Saul was one who received profound grace. It was profound. What a perfect teacher. Not somebody who says, well, of course, I'm a son of a Pharisee. And Paul said, all that stuff I count as rubbish. This Saul could systematically teach the church. And he is going to do just that. And the Lord was guiding it all. As he was with the Cypriots and the Cyrenians coming up. As their selection of Barnabas being the man. As now, I'm going to go get Saul. To seek Saul, Barnabas had to find him. I better call Saul. That's where this is going. Verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Saul was made for this. If no one else knew it, he was made for this. Barnabas knew it. He's probably the only one that did. Although there must have been people in Cilicia listening to Saul teach and said, "Boy, this guy needs to be, he needs to be on the radio. <laughs> he needs to be out there." Not enough that we should sit here and benefit from this. Another man, Onesiphorus by name, years later, will also seek for Saul and he will find him. 2 Timothy Paul, by this time, is touched by it. And he, he gets it down in writing. He says about Onesiphorus, when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. He had to check all the jails. He had to go through the jails in Rome. Is there anybody here? It was that kind of love. A man so loved that others came looking for him. That was Saul. The Lord sought him on the road to Damascus. Ananias sought him on a street called Straight. Barnabas saw, sought him in Tarsus of Cilicia. The Roman believers sought him on the Appian Way. They came out as much as 40 miles to greet Saul, and then Paul now, as he was under arrest coming to, to Rome. Anesophoros sought him in the Roman jails, as I just referenced in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 1, verses 16-17. I think the lesson is if we learn to offer something to the something that the world needs, then men will make a pathway to our door. I think that's, that's the lesson. Paul had what the world needs. And God began, and then he had others seek a way to get Paul involved, even if he was in jail. So it was, verse 26, that for a, a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. What did he teach? Well, he taught the book of Acts. No, he didn't. He's making the book of Acts. Acts isn't written yet. He's teaching the Old Testament, with New Testament truths. Systematically teaching, not preaching. Preaching is what we do really to... Uh, the lost or to the misbehaving believers. But teaching. Acts chapter 20, he will go on to say to the Ephesian elders, for I am not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I haven't held back anything from you. In Hebrews, he writes, and I believe it was him, therefore leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. There he is, the teacher. All teachers at some point, every single teacher at some point meets with resistance by those whom they're teaching. I don't think there's an exception. If you are a parent, if you are a professional teacher, if you are a pastor, if no matter where you are, if you are teaching someone after a while, they're going to push back. And, you you know, you you deal with that. Paul did, and, and... we all do. I know sometimes when someone disagrees with me, my first inclination is to faint. <laughs> so, I don't believe it. Uh. <laughs> well, we could have a lot of fun with that. But let's get back to this. We don't have much time. Ephesians chapter 4. Why, why do we do the teaching? We Christians. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. It makes everything better. Not perfect, but better than it would have been without it. Barnabas picked up on it. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice that it was after the teaching that this, by Luke, is placed. And it's probably because that systematic teaching began to influence their surroundings. They made an impact. It was hitting the targets. Some were getting saved. Some were resisting. Some were scoffing. The Jewish historian Josephus called Christians, uh, called us the tribe of Christians. Now, Josephus has only nice things to say about Christ and Christianity without going as far as saying, hey, I'm a believer too. Uh, But that is a nice testimony Coming from that Jewish historian, but he's still linking them with the Jewish heritage. When he says the tribe of Christians, it's like the tribe of Ishkar, the tribe of Asher, no, it's the tribe of Christians. So there's that still, that was that understanding. We could come a little bit more to that in a moment. But initially, this was intended as ridicule, a term of derision. I'm not 100% sure, but 99% sure. Acts twenty eight. King Agrippa said to Paul, "You almost persuade me to be a Christian." He's using the, how he was speaking private about the Christians, and that happened, of course, after these events. So that Greek term, Christ, means the Anointed One. Well, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Messiah, the Anointed One. This. Word Christian is a hybrid; it's the Greek and the Latin, and it means, you know, the little Christ, the little Christ-like guys, the that group of people like Christ is a high compliment, and they didn't even know it. The word Christians, the little anointed ones, that's what it it means. It was a name given to these believers in Antioch. It was not chosen by a Jew. A Jew would not. Uh, For for a a Jew to call a Christian, a non-Christian Jew, for him to call a Christian would have meant that he was acknowledging they belonged to Messiah. So he wouldn't call them Christians. He would object to that description, as a matter of fact. You mean the Nazarene. It was certainly not a name chosen by the believers themselves. Up to this point, we called ourselves the disciples, those of the way, the brethren, this this was designated uh, by those outside of the faith. And it was very accurate. In spite of what their intentions were in mocking them, God's it's, almost, it's God said, you got that right. When you started calling my people little anointed ones, little Christ-like ones, you got it right on the head, and we're going to use it. You're right, you don't even know it. Peter uses it contrary to shame in 1 Peter. We won't go there, 1 Peter 4, 16. Uh, in other words, he's embracing it. It's not a, it doesn't show up a lot in the New Testament for a lot of reasons, not because it was rejected. This uh, distinction, though, it's, so it makes the Christians, so okay, the Christians are here, the, Jew, the Jewish faith is here. Christianity is not a sect of, of Judaism. That's what they realized. That's when they got this name. That will cause Caesar to persecute them. When, Caesar's, when the Caesars find out, you mean they're not part of the Jewish people? That's right. We can persecute them. We won't have to worry about dealing with the Jewish community. And that is what happens when, with Nero when, he burnt, when, when Rome burns and they blame the Christians. Verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Yeah, that's systematic teaching. It drew onlookers, verse 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. About the time that uh, Paul gets to doing this teaching, these things in the latter part are, are taking place. Now, Agabus, what made him a prophet is he spoke forth the word of God, like I'm doing this morning, and he also uh, predicted, foretelling uh, what God was going to do by predicting this uh, coming famine, which the historians, Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, they all say this famine hit. Uh, so verse 29, warning the Christians so they could be prepared. That's the purpose of it. Not just, hey, it's going to be a famine. Well, there's a famine. just to Get ready for it. Verse 29, I'm way over time um, I'm going to finish this up just to prove our brother wrong, because, <laughs> just give me a minute. If, if you have to go, no, just suffer. It's a little, <laughs> no. if you have to go, then of course, get up. We'll all be looking at you. Uh, anyway, verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. First time the church is taking up a collection for another church Uh, that's a lot there. We give according to our ability. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Ezra 2, 69, Nehemiah 5, 8, other other places. Uh, But we are to share with them. I want to go back for a moment. Uh, No, let's go to verse 30. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, This is the first time we meet with the elders, that's the leaders in the church, the pastor overseers. They would uh, take the leading role in time in the churches, transitioning from the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets, like Agabus, they were foundational. There are no more apostles of Jesus Christ. Uh, there could be lesser apostles, but not of Jesus Christ, handpicked by Christ. The prophets, uh, Ephesians two twenty. And 4.11, God gave these to the church. We can have prophecy, but uh, not like it was in the, in the beginning of the church. By the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is Saul's second trip to Jerusalem after his conversion. Now, I mentioned and we'll close with this. The churches in the New Testament that I would not want to attend. Corinth would be number one. Well, not number one. Pergamus and Thyatira and Laodicea—they all would be number one. Then Corinth, probably the church in Jerusalem. I probably—you know—just too legalistic. Uh, but the churches in the New Testament that I wouldn't hesitate to line up with: Philippi, Berea, Philadelphia, and Antioch. You read about these churches, and you just say, "Man, this is nice." And you read about the other ones, you say, "Boy, we got problems." Well, let's pray. You've gone a little bit long this morning listening. If you you just learn to listen faster, we would um, be out of here. Let's, Let's pray. Our Father called Christians like Christ and how we long for that in the flesh and the spirit within our own lives, war, battle. And yet, as has been quoted this morning, where sin abounded, grace did much more. You're so patient and wonderful. It is not a surprise that those who love you really love you. If you have been listening and you've not opened your heart to Christ, but you have sensed that he's been moving in your life and your heart, calling you, inviting you, you have to make it official. You have to say it out loud. If, if you make this prayer as a template and mean it, We are told that God will receive you, and we believe him. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your commandments, and I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you are God the Son who died in my place to take away my judgment and the judgment of all who had come to you. I ask you to forgive me because there is no one else who died for me. There is no one else good enough to die for me and take my sin away. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one who saves my soul from judgment, but the one who lords over my life forever. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not shy away from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.